All right. So um, today, uh, for those of you that, that don't follow along online or things like that, you, you might not know, but today we actually launch um, our new sermon series in Hebrews. Um, and, and this sermon series will actually take us up because this, the focus of Hebrews is all about Jesus and who Jesus is and how Jesus is better, right? How Jesus is the culmination of every good thing. And so as we walk through the book of Hebrews, right, we're going to be learning and engaging with this truth of, of Christ and what it is that he calls us into. And here's, here's what I promise you. What Jesus has for us is better, um, and actually, we'll get to celebrate the last week of this series. We'll, we'll wrap up on Easter Sunday as we really celebrate the resurrection uh, of Christ and, and what that is. And so this matters. And, and Hebrews is one of my favorite books. Um, it's really my favorite book in, in the New Testament. I was telling the, the first service that I really like the way Revelations ends um, because that's cool. Um, but otherwise, the book of Hebrews, I think, is, is just so critically important as we, as we walk through this. And, and the reason is because of this. Here's what I want you to understand about the book of Hebrews. Jesus changes everything. Amen. See, the reality is this. Because of Jesus Christ, worship was never the same. See, for us, all we know all we know is the church age. From the minute we started recognizing the importance of church, or uh, maybe today if it's the first time and somebody drug you along with, but whatever it is, church, this is what it's always been for us. But throughout history, this has not been the case. And what happens is Jesus changed everything. And because of Jesus, worship was never the same. He revolutionized worship, revolutionized this relationship that we have with the God of the universe. And we're going to see as we walk through Scripture, um, today we're just going to start with the reality that Jesus is superior. Superior to what? Superior to all. Jesus is superior. And, and we're going to see as we walk through what that means for us. Okay, now, a little bit of background um, on, on the book of Hebrews. Uh, first things first, uh, we don't know who the author is, right? Like, just in case, you know, just if you've never been in the book of Hebrews before. By the way, um, when you came in, you were offered one of these, um, and this is just a Bible study guide, little cardstock piece of paper, Bible study guide, so that you can be working through the book of Hebrews with us as we go through this sermon series. So if you did not grab one of these on the way in, grab one on the way out. Both doors, they'll be ready for you. Grab one. And, and what we'll do as we go through this is, is we'll just be focusing on the truth of who Jesus is and, and what he does. So there's some questions there, some, some three, three days a week. Like you, got a, you got seven days in a week, and, and we're asking you to engage in this Bible study for three of those days or spread it out over six, however you want to do it, but really dig in and track with us. But when it gets to Hebrews, we, we don't know who the author is. Some people will tell you it's Paul. Seems unlikely because in all of his other letters, Paul identifies himself. Uh, some people will tell you that it's Barnabas or Apollos. Um, could be. We don't know. Um, the, the simple reality is, is that there, there's no identifier. Nobody writing says, hey, this is me and I'm writing this. And you know what? To a degree, that's appropriate. 
It's appropriate because this book is all about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And it's the focus on here's who Jesus is. And as we do that, it takes the focus away from everything else and it just elevates him. And it's written to a Jewish audience. It's why, we have, it's, why it's called Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is, is a word we would use for the Jews. So it's written primarily to a Jewish audience. Okay, so there's a couple of things that we should know. There's, there's basically three different intended recipients of this letter. Some of them are Jewish Christians. That is, they're Jews who grew up under the Jewish system, and they came in confrontation with the truth of who Jesus was as the Messiah, and they accepted that truth, and they surrendered to that truth, and they believed and are following Jesus now, which makes them Christians. So they are Jewish Christians. They are fully in. They are all in on Jesus. These are people that would have believed and then been baptized in response. These are people that would be publicly demonstrative about the fact that Jesus is Lord. Next. Oh, and by the way, when they did that, they would have suffered consequences for it. They would have been ostracized a little bit socially. They'd have been removed from their synagogues. Sometimes... um, removed from their families, suffering economic hardship, right? So the decision to follow Jesus and publicly proclaim for a Jew wasn't a simple one. It came with persecution and harassment. But these people had counted the costs and they decided to follow. The next uh, group of folks are Jewish folks who are not Christians, but it's weird that they're not Christians because they actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so they, they've seen all the information. They've had the scriptures explained to them. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's like, yeah, he is. But yet they've not taken the step of turning their life over to him. They've got a gap between what they know here, what they intellectually believe, and what they actually are believing with the way they live their life. And some of us might be in that category too, maybe not Jewish, but some of us might be in the category where we know, like we intellectually agree that Jesus is God, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again, we know it, but it hasn't really impacted the way that we live. We haven't surrendered our lives. We aren't following. And, and, and these are people that aren't following for a couple of reasons. Maybe they think just knowing it is good enough Probably, they're just afraid of the consequences. They're afraid of what it will cost. They don't want the relational tension. They don't want the persecution. They don't want the economic hardship. So they believe that it's true, but they haven't surrendered yet. And Paul's going to, or Paul, the author is going to write to them as well. It's almost always Paul. Every New Testament book, it's almost always the, the author is going to speak to them too. And then finally, the last group are, are people that, they're religious Jews. They are people who are very religious in the way they act, the way they think. By and large, when, when you look at them societally, we would say these are good people. They're good people. 
But they're not Christians. In fact, they reject Christ. They think that Christ was a heretic. When Jesus claimed to be God, which Jesus absolutely claimed to be God in the New Testament, when Jesus claimed to be God, they called it blasphemous and they killed him for it. And so we've got Jewish Christians. We've got Jews that just don't believe at all. They don't agree at all with Jesus. And then we've got these folks in the middle who intellectually they agree, but behaviorally they just keep doing their own thing. And so the author writes a letter to these three people, and this is what we're going to see as he goes, and he makes this very eloquent argument that will stretch from start to finish about how Jesus is the answer. Jesus is everything, right? Because the Jews are in a predicament, and they know it. See, there's a couple of things that you need to understand about being Jewish, too, um, and that'll, that'll under, help us understand the context that the author's writing in. So, so one belief is this, and it's Exodus 33.20. You'll find it in there. Um, is that, that no man can see God and live. No man can see God and live. That God is, is holy and we are not, and therefore we can't look on God and live. Uh, God tells that to Moses in Exodus 33 when, when Moses says, let me see you, and God says, no, you can't. You can't. Right? He says, instead, I'll, I'll cover your face and, and, and I'll pass by, and you can, you can be in my presence, but you can't look at me. Isaiah when, when he has the vision and he's lifted up into the throne room of God, he falls to his, his, his knees and he covers his face and he says, woe to me, I'm doomed because I've seen God. Because this is the very clear understanding. We can't look at God. And the other understanding is this. That sinful man, not only can we not look at him, but sinful mankind, men and women, humanity, sinful man is necessarily separated from a holy God. That there is a gap. There is a fixed chasm between us. And when it comes to sin, here's something that that the Jewish audience of this letter would have clearly understood. And it's something that I think we miss. um, Something we don't talk about nearly as much as we should. and, And it's simply this. When it comes to sin, it's worse than you thought. There are basically um, three words for sin, and we lump them in English all together in the word sin. Um, and, and basically, it's iniquity, and then sin is its own word, and then transgression. Um, and, and those all have very Hebrew um, meanings that are all rooted in our idea of sin, but they're all very different. And, and unfortunately, the one that we typically think of is the third one, transgression, peshat. Right? We think of peshat, we think of that word as, as what we mean by sin, and that is willful rebellion. That is, I do things I know I shouldn't do. I willfully rebel. Right? This is, this is that thing where, where you tell your kids, be home by nine, and they come home at midnight. It's a willful rebellion. They did something wrong, and they knew it. Right? None of our kids do that. But other churches are filled with parents whose kids misbehave. (laughs) And so at those churches, those kids break curfew all the time. Willful rebellion. God says you are not to have sex outside of marriage. We engage in sex outside of marriage. Willful rebellion. 
God says, bless you, God says, um, you're, you're not to put any unclean thing before your eyes. We look at things we shouldn't look at. It's willful rebellion. God says, don't get drunk. We get drunk. Willful rebellion. And when we think of sin, that's what we think of. But it's worse than that. Right? Because that's just one of the ways that, that God characterizes sin. Uh, the first one, iniquity, avah. That just means twisted and out of shape. Listen to me. This is why it's worse than you thought. Some of you right now are looking at that word and you're going, Avon. That's where, that's where Avon comes from. It's not. It's not. But you think they would pick a better name if they knew Hebrew. Because um, all their stuff is twisted and out of shape. No. Um, I don't know. Is Avon still a thing? Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, does anybody here sell it? Okay, good. I was going to be sorry that I badmouthed your product, but not really. Um, but, but here's the issue. This is just twisted and out of shape. And this is just a fact of your being. It's not about anything that you do or have done. I mean, really wrap your head around this. When we talk about original sin, and we talk about the fall, Genesis 3, when sin enters the world and, and there are curses because sin has entered the world, we talk about something called depravity. It's this. It's this idea that just by being human, we are broken and messy. It's not about even doing something wrong. It's just about because of the nature of man and the fall that happened in Genesis 3, which is a very real incident, that we are now misshapen. Think of it simply. Think of it this way. You were supposed to be a circle, and now you're a square. And you'll just never fit. You'll never fit the way you were supposed to. And you're like, man, that sucks. I'm like, yeah, it does. You're like, but I didn't do anything. Yeah, I know. That's just the nature of the fall. It's the nature of humanity that we are broken by nature. That's the sin of iniquity. We just aren't right like we're supposed to be. And that, and that very clearly leads to this next, this chata. That's actually ka, kata, right? This sin, this missing the mark. What that tells us is that because we're misshapen, because we're a square when we should be a circle, because we're the wrong shape, even when we do something good, it still misses the mark. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Even my best behavior, my best intention, my best righteousness is still not okay to God. This is why sin is so much worse than we think it is. We think of sin, we think of the wrong thing that we do, and that's sin, but sin is also just us. It's just our being. And because it's just us, even the good things that we do fall short. They fall short of God's standard because God's standard is perfection. God's standard is Jesus. And you and I, no matter how good we are, no matter what our intentions are, we are not Jesus. We're just not. Sin is worse than we think. And so here's, here's the reality, right? Because of sin, there is no natural nearness to God. And this, this is the problem. 
that the Jews faced. Because of sin, there is no natural closeness to God. He's there, we're here. There is this fixed chasm between us. We can't get to him. And we know it. And it's bad. And so God does something. He institutes something to start to help. And this is the other background piece that we need to know. What he institutes is what we would refer to as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a covenant between God and man. He gives it to Moses. right? If you know your Old Testament history, uh, when Moses leads the Jews, the Hebrews, out of Egypt in the Exodus, they stop at, at Mount Sinai and God gives him the commandments and he gives him the law. And that law ushers in this Old Covenant. Then They didn't call it the Old Covenant then. They just called it the Mosaic Covenant. We call it the Old Covenant because it's been replaced with a new covenant, something better. But the Old Covenant, read through your your first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it will paint this great picture for you about this Old Covenant. But the crux of the Old Covenant was this. God gave laws. When you followed the laws, there were blessings. When you broke the law, there were curses. And part of the law was something called the sacrificial system. The old covenant hinged on a sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system worked like this. You would very frequently go to either the tabernacle. The, the, I'm going to try that again. If you thought, yeah, that sounds right, read your Bible. <laughs> the tabernacle. I don't even know how I said it the first time. If you, you, you would take a sacrifice, and, and, and first you would come to the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle and the temple are kind of interchangeable. The, the tabernacle was this temporary tent of meeting. It's, it was set up to, to be this temple, but it was able to be transported. This was when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness. Whenever God had them set up camp somewhere, they would set up the tabernacle in the center of camp. Okay, And then when it was time for them to move on and God wanted them to wander some more, they would pack up the tabernacle and they would take it with them. Later, once they conquered the promised land um, in Jerusalem, God had them build a permanent temple in Jerusalem. Right? But, so what you would do in the Old Covenant is you would take your sacrifice, um, a calf or a lamb more commonly, and... and it's kind of gross, but you would bring your sacrifice, your iniquity and sin and transgression would be symbolically placed on the animal. The priest would slaughter the animal, would take the blood of the animal, sprinkle it on the altar, and sprinkle it on you, And then you would have this cleansing, this covering, this atonement of your sin. It wasn't permanent. It was temporary. And it had to be repeated for individuals. And it had to be repeated over and over and over again. And so the priest's work was never done. They would have to offer this sacrifice for individuals, all of them separately, and then as a nation, over and for themselves, because they were broken over and over and over again. It was the old covenant. 
you can picture the cycle, right? Like, like we sin because we're wrong, we're misshapen, and even our best efforts aren't good enough. And on top of that, we do things we know we shouldn't. And, and so we bring our sacrifice, and, and our guilt is symbolically transferred to the animal, and, and it's an outward act that's supposed to demonstrate this inward heart repentance, saying, God, I'm sorry, I know I deserve death. Thank you for forgiving me. And I walk away, and I'm still broken, I'm still misshapen, I still do stupid. And the cycle has to repeat itself, and that's the old covenant. And it was the best we had to provide this communion with God because there was no natural way for us to be with God because of our sin. So the best we had was what God provided in this old covenant, that through the sacrificial system and following the law the best I could, I could have at least a way to get to God. And that's what Jews knew. It's all they knew. And then Jesus comes and he changes everything. That's why we just understand that Jesus is superior. Everything changes because of Jesus. Worship will never be the same. Let's get into this. Um, that's the one right there. All right. I gotta find my right page. Here it is. Hebrews 1 uh, through the second half of 2. We're just gonna look at, at, at basically three verses this morning as we kick off this series. We're going to look at three verses. And, and, and so some of you are thinking, that is the longest introduction in the world. I know, right? But we're only looking at three verses. So we're a quarter of the way there. It's not that bad, I promise. Some of you that aren't here very often, you're like, man, is he serious? No, he's kidding. Like a third. Read with me. Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so what this text is telling us, what the author is saying here, is that God has been preparing the world a little bit at a time for Jesus. God has been getting us ready for Jesus a little bit at a time. Long ago, way back at the beginning, starting with, with, with Abraham, even before that, really, but, but where our story starts with Abraham, I mean, going back to Noah, God has been giving us a little bit of information, a little bit at a time. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. We talked about priests earlier. Prophets and priests are different, and both are going to be referred to in Hebrews, and Jesus is actually both. The difference is that a prophet is someone who talks to men for God, okay? Talks to men and women, humanity, um, for God. God will tell the prophet, the prophet will communicate, right? A priest, differently, is someone who talks to God on behalf of mankind. So men and women would come to the priest and offer sacrifices, and the priest would serve as a mediator between them and God. There are still some churches that do it that way today, those are churches that don't understand the book of Hebrews, I, I have to argue, because there is no way um, with Jesus coming, it changes everything. But, but, but a priest would be one that men and women would come to, and then they would talk to God on their behalf. Listen, I am not a priest. I'm not a priest. Occasionally, people will call me a priest, and, and I won't get mad at them outwardly. Oh, but in here. I get a little irritated because I go out of my way to make sure, listen, you don't need me to talk to God. 
You don't need me to talk to God. You can talk to God anytime you want, Christian, because of Jesus. You can go directly to the throne room, and we're going to see that as we go through here, but you don't need me to talk to God. I can encourage you. If you want to come to me and ask me to pray for you, oh, I would love to pray for you and your family, but you don't need me for God to hear your prayers. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that's what a priest did. A priest allowed people to get to God. He was the, the doorway, the intermediary, right? The mediator, the mediator between God and men was the priest. The prophet would tell people what God wanted. The priest would let people get to God. It's the old way. Long ago, God, many times and in many ways, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in the final days, he's spoken to us through his son. Here's the thing that you have to know, too. That this is what we talk about with progressive revelation, that God would, would add to his revelation to men. You know, it would start with, with this piece of information, and, you know, he would tell Abraham, go. Where? He didn't tell them where. He just said, go. I'll show you. Later on, he said, sacrificial system. He said, there's, 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 a, there's a prophet coming, a Messiah is coming, but until then, do it this way. And what people were responsible for was what God gave them. Somebody asked me before the first service, like, what happened to people that died before Jesus's resurrection? Did they just go to hell because Jesus hadn't been resurrected yet? Did they go to heaven because, well, they didn't know they were supposed to follow Jesus? Those are great questions, and, and here's the answer. God progressively revealed truth. And what they were responsible for was what God had revealed. They weren't responsible for things God hadn't revealed, but they were responsible for what God had revealed. That's the way that it worked. And he progressively revealed a little bit at a time. But now, in these last days, in the final days, he has given it to us. He has spoken through his son. See, this is the way progressive revelation works. He, he just gives us a little bit at a time, and it never contradicts, right? Um, and it always builds. Like, for example, we, we read this chronologically through Scripture. He told Noah what quarter of the world the Messiah would be from. We read in Micah, written much, much later, uh, we read what town he's going to be from. So he starts to narrow it down. We read in Daniel the time of his birth. We read in Malachi, the prophet that would come immediately before him, right? We read in Jonah, this typification of the resurrection. And, and so he progressively reveals this in scripture a little bit at a time, never contradicting, always building on until now in these final days, he's spoken through his son. By the way, this is why we don't accept more secret revelation. This is why we don't expect, like, like, you know how prophets would hear from God and tell people, this is what God is saying, right? We don't do that anymore. Because in these last days, these final days, guess what? He's given us his full revelation in his son. That's why this new, new special things, we just, we, we discount. Because God has spoken to us finally, firmly in his son. It's final revelation. The Quran, we dismiss that. The Book of Mormon, right? 
Watchtower publications, the, the book of health and science, these things we, we discount, not, not to be mean um, and, and not to be argumentative and, and not because we're really just hoping our way is right, but we discount them because we know this fact that God has long ago spoke in many ways through the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. This is the reality. Jesus is better Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus has ushered this in. And, and I'll tell you what, this is actually, it, it makes sense. This progressive revelation is kind of a gift of God's grace. Something that mankind has always tried to do is figure out the spiritual, the supernatural. We've always tried to do it. Right? And some people would say that we're always trying to, like throughout history, like 98% of all people all time um, have believed in some kind of spiritual system. Well, why is that? You know, the, the really enlightened ones of us that, that live today would say, well, it's because we've always wanted a crutch. We've always wanted something to, you know, just to know that there's meaning in the world and that it's bigger than us, but it's not really true. But, but the reality is, the reason that people have always tried to figure this out is because it's actually in our DNA, In our heart, we are hardwired to think about the supernatural. We are hardwired to think about the spiritual. Um, Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He says that, that God has written eternity, supernatural, spiritual things. He has written eternity on the human heart. You are hardwired to think about supernatural, spiritual things. The problem is you are physically, you're, you're a physical being. You're not a, you are limited in what you can see and perceive. So you see this dilemma, right? You are hardwired to crave this supernatural spiritual world, but you are stuck in this physical being. And so what we desperately want to know about is what's going on out here in this unseen world that we can't see. What's this all about? How, how has creation happened? And, and what is our life all about? And what's the meaning of life? And what happens after we die? And how does this all fit together? And what do my actions mean? And how does it all play together? And, and we're stuck in this tension. And that's what happens. It's like the physical world is a box and we are stuck in it. And so we get our religious chisel and our religious hammer and we start trying to poke holes in the box so that we can at least peek. And we get a lot of man-made religion that way. We get a lot of man-made things because we're trying the best we can in a physical world box to see into this spiritual world and it doesn't work. We come up with a lot of wrong, a lot of bad ideas in the name of religion talking about this in the first service, like, like <laughs> you, ever, you ever think about, like, like, where does it come from? Where does it come from that the best way to get your crops to grow, the best way to get your crops to grow is to get drunk and have an orgy, right? Because that is a religious system that was taught um, in the Old Testament at, at the time of Israel entering into the land. That's a religious system that exists. It probably still exists in parts of the world today where, where the best we could come up with right, to get our crops to grow is to have this kind of celebration. Well, that's the best we can do in a physical box with our own chisel and our own hammer, just trying to get a peek outside and, 
and see. I mean, I mean, where, where do you suppose it came from that, that the best we could do to honor God with a sacrifice was to drop our kids over a cliff, our babies over a cliff, in, into a burning fire? Which is a practice that existed. Like that's, it's broken, right? But we have this desire. So what happens is God institutes this old covenant, this system, to give us a glimpse, right? I mean, it would be great if we could walk into the wardrobe, come out in Narnia, and see how it's all supposed to work, but that's not real, and so we're stuck, okay? And so the best we could do is this old covenant where over and over we bring a sacrifice, and and God tries to show us uh, what it's supposed to be like, and we bridge this gap, but it's temporary, and it needs to be repeated, and, and it's problematic. And what we really need Right? What we really need is for somebody to come into the box to tell us what God wanted, to tell us what it's like and what it's about, and to show us a way out. And that's what the author is saying here. Long ago, God spoke to you in many ways, right, through our ancestors, through the prophets, and he did this little bit at a time to give you enough information, to give you, to get you ready, to get it ready, and now... He's finally spoken to you in fullness through his son who he sent into the box with you to show you and tell you what it was like and and to show you how to enter into this spiritual world. And it's not piecemeal sacrifices, but it's this once and for all thing. See, Jesus in his coming ushers in this whole new way of being, this whole new covenant, this different way That's what we're going to see as we get into the book of Hebrews. We're going to see why is Jesus better? Why is Jesus superior? Well, Jesus is superior because he he is God in flesh coming into the box with us to show us God. Not tell us about God, but to show us God and then show us how to enter into this spiritual fullness in a way that nobody before could. See, this is why Jesus is superior. Because God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, God created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. See, there's about six things that we're going to pull out of here a little bit at a time, and, and I just want to tell you this. All of these are going to go to show us why Jesus is superior. Some of you are here this morning, and, and you are not Christians. Some of you are here this morning, and you're not Christians. Um, and, and so you, I would encourage you, part of how you need to begin is you need to begin with the understanding, is, is Jesus real? And you need to start there. And you need to not believe it because I tell you. Because look, here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus is real, right? Jesus existed. He was a physical, historical person. He was real. And what I would encourage you to do is check me on that. More than that, I will tell you this. Not only was Jesus real, but Jesus claimed to be God. Believe it or not, you don't believe it or not, doesn't matter. Like whether you believe he was God or whether you don't believe he was God, Jesus claimed to be God. That is also historical fact. Don't believe me, check it out. 
right? I mean, you can believe me because I said so if you want, but a lot of people are going to tell you a lot of things, and you don't just want to take their word for it, right? Because there's somebody else standing in a church telling you, Jesus never said that. And so you can believe them because they said it, you can believe me because I said it, or you can do the work yourself. But here's what I know. Jesus was real, and Jesus claimed to be God. So Jesus cannot be, listen to me, Jesus cannot be a good moral teacher. For any of you that have grown up with that idea of Jesus, for any of you that are sitting here today thinking, well, I'm not really mad at Jesus. He was a good moral teacher, but I just don't believe that he's God. Listen, Jesus cannot be a good moral teacher. He is either God, he's nuts because he thought he was God. Any of you ever see the movie The Dream Team with Michael Keaton, Peter Weller? Well, he thinks he's God. He thinks he's Jesus. He's not. He's crazy, right? So, so here's the deal. Um, one, watch the dream team because that movie holds up. Two, Jesus wasn't a good moral teacher, right? It's either true that he was God. It's either true that he was God or he was just crazy or he was just flat out evil and a liar because he claimed to be God. So you can't walk out of here thinking, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. He was just a good moral teacher. No, he was either God, he was nuts, or he was an evil liar. You got to pick one of those. And more than that, Jesus said time and time again while he was on this earth, I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected. And so this is kind of where our, uh, this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road, is do we believe in the resurrection? I'm going to tell you this, there, there is plenty of evidence, not from scripture, to believe in the resurrection. Again, I'm, I'm going to encourage you, don't believe that because I said it. But go check it out. Go check it out. Read. But the reality is that Jesus is who he says he was. And that in that, everything changes then because Jesus comes to earth, God in flesh, steps into the box with us and then shows us how to engage God in a way that's different. We were stuck in the old covenant, and he ushers in this new, better covenant that only he can administer. So let's look at this. Um, One, we know that Jesus is better because he is the heir of all things. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. He is the heir of all things. And it makes sense that he's the heir of all things, right? Because everything belongs to him. It's all his. He creates it, and it's all his. In fact, we read in Revelation 5, here, let's read this, it says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. This is God. Saw a scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. On the inside and the outside of the scroll, there was writing, and it was sealed with seven seals. And so what we know this is, is this is actually a will, right? This is a title deed to the earth. This is the will. And and so the fact that it's sealed by seven seals, uh, you're like, ooh, seven seals, that's really spiritual. And it is, right? Seven, for some reason... We feel like, oh, it's this super spiritual number. It's actually sealed by seven seals, though, because that was how it was done in that Roman culture. 
That's how legal documents were sealed. That way they couldn't be tampered with. So, for example, a will that I would have had in that time would have been sealed seven times. So I would have written it, or it would have been written for me. I would have signed it, and it would be rolled up a little with a seal put on it. Then rolled up a little more with a seal put on it. Rolled up a little more. They would have done that seven times so that in reading it, the seals would have had to have been broken and it couldn't be tampered with. Okay? And, and so the audience here knows exactly what John is writing about in Revelation when, when, he, when, when, when he, we see God sitting on the throne holding this scroll that's been sealed. This is the title deed to the earth. Okay, and let's, let's keep reading here. Verse 2, And I saw um, a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one on, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Listen. Jesus is the heir of everything. Colossians tells us that not only was everything created through him, it was actually created for him. It's all his. He ushers in a better covenant. He is a better sacrifice. He is better. He is superior. One of the reasons is because it's all his. We keep going. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. Everything that exists, exists because he created it. Right? We know that, right? Like in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and, and God creates it all. We read in John 1 that the Word creates. He creates it. Well, it makes sense that it belongs to him and that he's the heir of it. He's the creator of it. And the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. I want you to get that, right? Jesus is the very character of God. See, this is the difference. Um, this is the difference. In the Old Covenant, the prophets could tell us about God. It's what they did. They told us about God. And when we wanted to talk to God... We had to come to the priests who would talk to God for us. It was this system. It couldn't get us all the way to God, but it could get us a little bit of the way. But now Jesus, Jesus is God in flesh, stepping into human history so that when we want to know what God is like, we just look at Jesus. You're like, man, what is God like? Well, we look at Jesus. What does God want? We look at Jesus. You ever want to know how God feels about you? Look at how Jesus feels. You want to know what lengths God would go to have you? Look at Jesus. What lengths did he go to? You want to know how much he will give for you? Look at Jesus. He gave everything for you. And the word tells us here that he is exactly the character of God. 
He is the exact representation. That's what the, when, when it says he expresses the very character, the, the Greek word there means the exact representation. He is exactly as God. He's God in flesh. He's not an angel. He's not a prophet like a man. He's not a priest like a man. He is something altogether different. He is God in flesh. And he sustains everything, everything by the mighty power of his command. Everything is sustained by God. Not only does he create it and it belongs to him, but he actually upholds it by his command. Gravity, right? We know the law of gravity. What goes up, gonna come down, right? Sir Isaac Newton, it's a good rule. We're glad about gravity. It's why we're not all floating away. Gravity's awesome. Why gravity, right? We know what it is. We can explain what it is. Can we explain necessarily why it works in nature that way? Why certain chemical reactions are beneficial to us, why oxygen and CO2, carbon dioxide, why they, why they have this interaction that benefits. Like we know that it happens. We can explain what's happening. Why? Right? These things, we, we kind of have been taught, we believe that what happens in the physical world just kind of happens because that's the way it's wired. No, no, what happens in the physical world happens because Christ ordains it to happen and upholds it. He's the reason that, that, that we have that, that we don't have chaos. He's the reason that we have an environment and a world that we can study and we can understand, right? Is because he upholds it all. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he's the ultimate sacrifice, right? Like I used to bring, I didn't, but, but people used to bring calves, lambs, doves, whatever the sacrifice was, they would bring it over and over and over again. Over and over and over. But Jesus cleansed us from our sins. See, when I brought a lamb, I wasn't cleansed. When people in the Old Testament brought a sheep or a lamb or a goat or whatever it was to be sacrificed, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the goat, the blood of the calf would not cleanse them. It would cover them. I want you to understand the difference, right? That blood as a substitute covered me for a time. It didn't cleanse me. But Jesus does something different. His blood cleanses. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. You know, in, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, in the area where the sacrifices happened, you know what there were not? There were no benches and there were no seats. And it wasn't a design flaw. God didn't forget to, to include them in the plans and, and the builders didn't forget to put them in. But in, in the place where the sacrifices happened, there were no benches and there were no seats because there was no rest. Because the work was never done. Sacrifices had to be made continually, day after day, 
week after week, month after month, year after year. The sacrifice is necessarily continued over and over and over again. But Jesus offers a once and for all sacrifice, not just to cover, but to cleanse. And then what does he do? He offers himself on the cross as a once and for all sacrifice, and here's what he does. He says this, he says, it is finished, and then he sits down at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven because it's once and it's done. And he ushers in something completely different. And this is, this is why he's superior. Like, like, you know, we'll talk about this later in the week, but in the tabernacle and in the temple, the, the, the innermost room was called the Holy of Holies. Um, you weren't allowed to go in the Holy of Holies. Like nobody was allowed to go in there. If you went in there, the word tells us you would die because that is where God's presence dwelled and you couldn't be in God's presence. If you went into the Holy of Holies, you would die. There was one person that was allowed to go in one time every year and it was the high priest, one guy, head guy, head priest was able to go in there once a year, right? And, and here's the thing, before he could go in there, and he would go in there to make a sacrifice one time a year, and it would be a sacrifice for the nation. It's on the Day of Atonement. Still, Jews still celebrate. It's called Yom Kippur. Um, they still celebrate this Day of Atonement. Um, and, and what would happen is he would go in, into the outer room, and he would have to make a sacrifice for himself because he's broken and messy and unclean. He's misshapen. So he would make a sacrifice for himself. Then he would go into the inner room, the holy of holies, and he would make a sacrifice for the people. One time a year. Jewish tradition tells us that he actually, before he went into the holy of holies, he actually had to tie himself off, tie a, uh, a rope around his ankle. <laughs> because if he were to go into the holy of holies and be unworthy and be in God's presence unworthily that he would die. And nobody could go in after him. So they would have to grab the end of the rope and just kind of pull him out. You're not going to find that in Scripture, but that's good Jewish tradition tells us that that was a practice that they followed, just to be safe. But Jesus, when he had cleansed us from our sins once and for all, he just sat down and said, hey, it's finished. It's done. And so this is the truth. This is why Jesus is better. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, understand this, you are no longer misshapen. You, you are no longer a square that can't fit right because in Christ, you are made new and you're made right. In Christ, your, your good deeds aren't sin. Are they perfect? No, but in Christ, they, they, they work. In Christ, we can pursue righteousness and goodness. Like in Christ, we have freedom and forgiveness. In Christ, we gather to worship. We enter directly into God's presence. We enter into the holy of holies without fear because it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us. This is what we do. This is why he is superior. This is why it matters. Let me ask the praise team to come up. And we're going to get ready to close the service. And, and here's all I want to tell you um, as we end today and as we, we gear up. we got nine more weeks in the series where we talk about Jesus and why it matters. Um, but, but here's the crux for today. 
we're going to learn a lot, and information is good. I want you to know more stuff about the old covenant. I want you to know more stuff about Jesus and, and how he is the high priest and how he is the perfect sacrifice and how he ushers in this new covenant. I want you to know a lot of things about that. But, but here, here's the reality. I want to encourage you to get past knowing. Knowing is one thing, and it's good. But, but man, I, we need to get to a point of belief where our knowing brings us to belief and it changes the way that we are. This is, this is what we talk about when we say that, that to become a Christian is more than just head knowledge. But it's saying, okay, God, I know that it's true, and now I'm going to turn my life over to you and follow you. And like I said earlier, there's no magic words. There's no special ceremony. It's something you do right where you are when prompted by God, but it's just a simple, simple matter of saying, okay, I'm turning my life over to you. And I want to follow you. And it won't be easy and it won't be perfect, but when you make that decision, you are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And when he says it is finished and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, you are welcome into the throne room. You're out of the box. You're ushered into this new kingdom. Everything is different. I should pray with me. If that's you today and you need to make that decision, you can do that right where you are. It's just simply a matter of saying, Jesus, I believe you. Thank you for taking my sin, and I'm going to try to follow you. I'm going to commit my life to you. And if that's a decision that you make, let's talk about it. Man, I don't want you to go from here without knowing what to do next or how to grow. I want to, I want to help you with that. But that's a decision you need to make in the quietness of your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word and the truths that it teaches. We thank you for, for the fact that you have sent your one and only son, that he stepped into human history so that we can come before you. We don't need another person to serve as a mediator between us and you. We don't need to bring a sacrifice so that we can have our sins temporarily covered. We no longer need to be misshapen. We no longer need um, to have, to have our, our imperfections counted against us. But God, because of your son, because you have revealed yourself to us in him and he is the perfect sacrifice and he ushers in a better covenant where we can be right with you. Father, that we can come before you and worship unafraid. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your sacrifice and I pray that if there is somebody here today that, that has been relying on head knowledge rather than surrender, that you would just prompt them and guide them in their heart to just turn their life over to you, to move from belief um, intellectually to, to just surrender. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen.